The growth of China's economy since market reforms were introduced in 1978 has been nothing short of miraculous. During that time, the World Bank estimates more than 500 million people were lifted out of poverty, and a middle class larger than the entire population of the United States has emerged. But China's ascendancy certainly isn't complete. Per capita GDP is still only a fifth of the United States, and nearly 100 million people live on less than $1.25 a day. The government is strained to deal with corruption, environmental concerns, and most recently, cracks have emerged in the once formidable juggernaut of growth. For many in China's upper and middle class, there are questions about what to do with all this newfound wealth, especially with so many signs of a slowdown approaching. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Peiran Wei, former Bloomberg North Asia Billionaires reporter and current research associate at the Ash Center's China Philanthropy Program. He's also a recent graduate of the mid-career MPA program here at the Kennedy School. Peiran, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I wanted to talk a little bit before we get started about where all this growth came from. It started back in uh, the late 70s with uh, Deng Xiaoping. Right. Um, and it was just uh, a, a crazy amount of growth up until very, very recently. A bit of information about myself. So I had the privilege to cover Chinese billionaires for Bloomberg for two years in greater China area. So I firsthand witnessed the growth of, of fortune in the, in the individual area. So I got asked many questions, many times uh, this same question, um, what's the secret recipe for billionaires get so rich? So I kind of thought about this and I came up with two conclusions. One, it's actually quite intuitive. Uh, they, they work super hard. They work 14, 15 hours per day, every day, 24 seven. And then the other thing is I, I noticed, so the majority of Chinese billionaires come from basically industries that's being supported by either the government or supported by the momentum of the economy. For example, uh, one of China's richest guy, oh, actually he is now the richest man in Asia, actually. He, his name is Wang Jianling, who owns Wanda Group, which owns actually AMC uh, theaters in the US. Mm -hmm. And he comes from uh, property. He started from scratch, built up from nothing, and started from a little Chinese city called Dalian in northeast part of China. And he has been in commercial property business for um, 20, 20, more than 20 years now. Um, so two factors that contribute to his success, commercial and property, which has been the, the pillow for growth in China for the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. And now, in recent years, I, I think we have seen more and more billionaires coming from the tech industry. For example, Jack Ma, um, his Alibaba was the largest uh, IPO in history, which mm -hmm. just got, last, uh, got public last year. Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, Pony Ma, who's from Tencent, and the, the mobile app, which is instant messenger app developed by, by Tencent, is actually the, the largest instant messenger in the world. I think they boast a, a user of at least 700 million, two times of the U.S. population. Now, this uh, emergence of this ultra-wealthy class, mm -hmm. uh, very new uh, in China, or at least not since maybe the Song Dynasty. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, how is the culture ad adapting to all these new billionaires? Are 
people really supporting, uh, you know, the fact that so many people are striking it rich, even though there are still, you know, 100 million people uh, living in absolute poverty? Well, I think there are definitely two groups of people. And one, you know, obviously people got jealous about, you know, sometimes it can happen just to your neighbor, neighbors, right? You live together for, for the past 20 years and suddenly one of them got so rich and become jealous. But I think the mainstream thought in China is, especially in the younger generation, they actually look up to the billionaires and they want to copy their success. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that, that explains why there's a big wave of uh, entrepreneurship and startup forming in China. Can you give a little perspective on the growth and the slowdown? Uh, before, China was growing at you know around 10% every year. Um, by comparison, the United States is growing around 2% every year. Um, now it looks like uh, things are slowing down, but still we're talking about six or seven percent growth. Mm-hmm. That's still you know three times faster <laughs> than the United States. Right. Uh, can you explain a little bit uh, why that why that's important? Right. So since I started working as journalist in China, that's uh, 2008. There has been a lot of talks, basically every day, every month, about uh, slowing uh, of China's economy. And I haven't seen that uh, really happening until pretty recently. Mm-hmm. And this time, the economic downward pressure is, is real. It's happening. Uh, I think there are basic two chief reasons for that. One is you know, the, the economy is more and more interconnected with the global economy. And with the crisis going on in the Eurozone and elsewhere, you know, it's inevitable that China failed impact. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think which is more important and more fundamental is China's undergoing a phase of um, switching gear. So it, it used to be the economic, economic growth used to be driven by investment, export, and big infrastructure projects. And now I think the, ch- the government and the business are trying to shift the economy to one that's driven by consumption and services. Mm-hmm. Because they, they understand that the, the old model is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it just wastes a lot of resources, and it's not, a, it's not smart enough in business terms. It naturally will take some time to, to make that change happen. So I think that's why we're seeing a relatively slow uh, pace of growth in the, in the past few quarters. As part of that slowdown in growth, Um, There's been a lot of talk about this outflow of capital, which is to say people in China who have, you know, all this newfound wealth Mm -hmm. and they're not reinvesting it in China. Mm -hmm. They're investing it in the United States or Britain Mm -hmm. or just elsewhere in the world, potentially because they see it as a safer bet to Mm -hmm. keep their money elsewhere. Uh, I imagine the Chinese government is not so pleased about this Mm -hmm. outflow. Um, Can you give us some background on that? Right. Uh, Matt, you're absolutely right in pointing out that capital outflow is a severe concern for the government. I think uh, this is according to uh, Bloomberg data because there's no official um, account of exactly how much money actually leave the country every month. So the, according to Bloomberg, in August, the amount of capital outflow hit a record of 140 billion U.S. dollars. And that's exceeded previous records set in July. So it's building momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to some analysts at J.P. Morgan, about one-third of the capital outflow 
is so-called hot money. It's basically uh, the money that Chinese individuals or foreign hedge fund they're seeking uh, higher returns and leaving China. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a big concern for the government, as you know, if, if there's no water in a pond, then there's no no growth, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think the reason for capital outflow are not just uh, uh, it's a, it have many factors. So the chief one, like I said earlier, is economic downward pressure, right? The capital has a natural to seek higher higher returns whenever they can. Right. Right. And the other thing is the China Central Bank surprise market in, I think, in August by devaluing the yuan, the currency, by 2%. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the Fed in the U.S. actually hinted that there's going to be an interest rate hike in the coming months. Right. So for people with the capacity of moving money around, you know, they would think twice about whether or not they should keep their money in China, where economic growth prospect is kind of bleak, and there's also a political uncertainty going on. Um, now, you say people who have the ability to move their money around. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about billionaires, of course, mm -hmm. um, who have tremendous uh, uh, liquid assets right. and can do that kind of thing. Um, but this is also applicable down to this, uh, the, the middle class. Right. Is this outflow true at, for people of all economic right. levels? So basically, there are two ways of getting your money out of China, which I would describe as retail and wholesale. So the retail way is... Uh, for I guess for for most middle class, the annual um, cap for each Chinese individual to exchange foreign currency is the equivalent of fifty thousand U.S. dollars. Mm. So like I can only get fifty thousand uh, for my own purpose, and then this is called the ant moving house. So if I know other twenty people and I can borrow their ID, and each one of us get fifty thousand, you, you can get a million. <laughs> That's the way a lot of Chinese middle class are doing now. Mm -hmm. so if you get a one million dollars for from for each year, it's enough to you know, get yourself a nice apartment in Cambridge or just spend somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I think the the other way, the wholesale approach poses greater danger to the to the economy. A lot of business people they will set up a offshore a business entity either in the U.S. or even better in those uh, tax haven places like uh, Virgin Island, British Virgin Island, or Cayman Island. And then oftentimes they would falsify trade and then issued invoice back to companies in China. And then the money will first get approval from uh, Chinese government and then be sent to overseas. And once the, the money leaves the country, it's the outside world is uh, pretty much free. Now, I imagine the Chinese government isn't too happy about this kind of right. uh, <laughs> uh, getting around their, their regulations. Uh, at the same time, it seems like there are two different ways of attacking this. One is, you know, cracking down on people who are exploding, exploiting loopholes like that. Another is to try and foster an environment where you would want to keep the money in the country. Um, are they pursuing either of those aggressively? Well, I think for... From the Chinese government perspective, they're in a sort of a dilemma. On one hand, they want to keep the money within the border, of course. Um, but on the other hand, they are actually 
the Chinese government has been pledging for many, many years since 1990s to make the yuan fully convertible, the currency. So I guess the 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 logic is if you don't have a fully convertible currency, you don't have global power. So, but I I think the and by fully convertible you mean um, that anyone can exchange a, a a dollar for a yuan or or whatever the rate exchange right. rate is um, without having to worry about caps. Yeah, it's just like a, a euro to to dollar mm-hmm. uh, exchange. Um, so I think right now the top priority for the government is in light of economic slowdown is really to keep the money at home to um to foster economic growth mm-hmm. um, so I, I think for if you understand chinese history especially uh the history of chinese communist party it's always been their top concern um which is the social stability so if the money leaves china economic growth will surely slow down mm-hmm. and people will be unhappy and that will actually jeopardize the legitimacy actually people have been talking about legitimacy of the communist party and in foreign western press because mm-hmm. the idea is their legitimacy is largely built on solid economic growth mm-hmm. to making people's lives better right and is that being questioned within mainland china well i, I think the if the chinese government they they say they're not really worried about um capital outflow it's only a natural thing mm-hmm. actually uh president xi jinping told the the wall street journal before his state visit to to the us in september he said um now i'm quoting him any ship however large may occasionally get unstable sailing on the high sea so if you look at this is a long term versus short term thing mm-hmm. i think short term they are very careful about you know keeping the money at home um but long term it's uh, it's only in china's interest to to open up their capital account to make yuan fully com- convertible is there a threat that this is going to continue to impact the chinese economy in a way that will slow it down further than it necessarily might have gone mm-hmm. uh, otherwise well i think the chinese government has actually taken uh, many steps uh, now to actually curb the capital outflow so china's state administration of foreign exchange actually told the banks to conduct special checks on uh foreign exchange trading account so basically they are increasing scrutiny and also the chinese government's working with um including government in the US to actually try to get a hold of corrupt officials who flood the country with large amount of money mm-hmm. i think that's also one of the major uh, agenda for president xi's visit here mm-hmm. Now on the other side of the spectrum uh all this outflow of capital is going into other communities around the world um and uh what exactly are they investing in and is it how is how is that impact being felt by London and New York and Boston and uh, elsewhere Well Matt yeah you you live in Cambridge you tell me how much the property price have been risen recently <laughs> <laughs> I I probably not going to be buying anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> Yeah I I think there there's a lot a, a big discussion about you know, the impact of Chinese money in not only Boston but you know West Coast East Coast and you know elsewhere in the world mm-hmm. The Chinese have a tradition to buy houses with like properties so it's inevitably uh so it's inevitable that you know people the first thing people with a lot of money 
uh, in their bank account to think about is buy a property. And I think um, it also has to do with the stage of China, China the development of Chinese rich class. Because usually the, the a normal profile of a Chinese millionaire, multi-millionaire, is uh, they are in their uh, 50s or 60s. So their children are actually either going to college or just start working, and most of them are overseas. Mm -hmm. So instead of renting a place, you know, why don't you just buy a house for your kids, right? So that actually explains a lot of property um, uh, purchase here and overseas and in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The stock market, obviously, uh, the Chinese stock market um, fell quite a bit in September. Does this mean a further negative trend going forward, or is China still going to see growth, uh, just not quite as much as it had seen mm -hmm. before? Well, on the stock market, actually, uh, I think it's actually bottoming. Uh, if you look at the Shanghai Composite Index, it, which is the benchmark, it's trading at about 3,000, which is... Uh, basically the same level as it was at uh, the end of last year, December. Um, yeah, th there's a big uh, drop, about 40% from a high in June, mm -hmm. but I don't see any reason that I it will uh, go down further. Um, and in terms of Chinese economy, we talk a lot about um, capital outflow, which seems has been uh, building momentum but you know, just bear in mind China has a foreign uh, reserve of almost four trillion US dollars so I, I think China has the the amenity to to push up econ economic growth if they want mm -hmm. and there's a there's a big sign for worry for sure but just don't panic well, uh, Pei Ranwei, associate at the Ash Center's China Philanthropy Program. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwalder and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, 